2: Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
3: And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business.
2: Indeed. And joining us today are The Times' very own Bill Edgar and James Gearbrandt. Coming up, we'll look ahead to the return of the Champions League. But first, let's get stuck into a brilliant weekend of Premier League action and that shock at Carrow Road. The Manchester City boss Pep Guardiola refused to criticise any of his players despite defensive mistakes costing the champions a shock 3-2 defeat at Norwich. Man City looked unusually nervous at the back with Nicolas Otamendi's mistake allowing Timu Puki to make it 3-1 before City clawed a goal back. But that was too little, too late, and it was a first defeat of the season for Manchester City. Now looking at their defence, this was just the sixth time in 80 games that John Stones partnered Otamendi, so... James, is it as simple as to say they are missing Americ Laporte?
0: Uh, yes, it's strange, isn't it? Because um, if you look, remember back to the, the the start of the seventeen eighteen season, the hundred point season. Stones and Otamendi was the you know was the starting centre back partnership for the first half of that season, and they were very very good together. Generally, they were extremely good together. Um, and obviously, since then, uh, Laporte has come in. Uh, last season, you know, towards the end of last season, Vincent Company sort of moved above Stones in the pecking order and Stones dropped down to being the fourth choice centre-back. So they've played together very little, kind of, you know, recently, Stones and Otamendi. Um, I think, you know, those who know Stones um, and, you know, know Manchester City well kind of say that he's a player whose confidence can really fluctuate and he's, you know, he's not necessarily the most confident character. And I think Otamendi benefits from playing alongside, you know, it's like a slightly more commanding figure like Laporte or, or company and, and obviously not with, you know, someone like stones who's had so little kind of first team action recently. Uh, yes. I mean, they, you know, they had a bit of a horror show, obviously on uh, Saturday, um, Obviously, they were very, very culpable uh, for the third goal in particular when they tried to play out from the back, and obviously Otamendi was robbed. However, I don't, I don't think it's just as simple as as Manchester City missing Laporte and and one other absence that I would point to. Although he's not, he's not injured, he's not unfit, but he's just fallen out of favour apparently. Is Fernandinho? I felt Fernandinho was really missed for whatever reason, whether it's age or kind of you know. Stylistic preference. He seems to, you know, have fallen out of favour with Pep. He's only, you know, I think he's only played. He's only, he's only made one substitute appearance this season. I think in in the first five games. But I thought I felt City really missed him. I felt they missed his defensive output in front of the back four, particularly, um, you know, his it actually his 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 cynical ability to commit fouls to stop a counter attack. I know it, it's you know. Um, it's not necessarily the most flattering part of his game, but I think it's a really important one, and I I felt City really missed that. You know, the second goal I think uh, that Norwich scored prime example of something that you know maybe wouldn't have happened had Fernandinho been playing. Mm. I think
1: he could be playing uh, quite soon, of course, as a centre back uh, if Stones are and Otamendi carry on as they are. But uh, you know, Guardiola said that. Uh, he's a um a backup and since they've only got three senior center backs laporta's injured and they they're just running into the champions league campaign now then you you know you, you this is the time that you start rotating so you could i'm sure you could expect fernandinho can expect a call or call two soon um but uh yeah, Stones and Tottenham—they have played, started, I think, seventy-three matches between them over the past two seasons. So they've, and, and and during which Manchester City have been pretty much invincible. So there's not really been that much of a drop off. Yeah, they're slightly more liable to make the odd mistake, and then they did make two or three or three really bad mistakes in one go. And Norwich punished them, you know, quite often you'll get away with it, but they just got punished uh, this time, so I, I don't think it's necessarily so calamitous, uh, mm. the absence of Laporte, but it is a problem not least because he's only, only, had, uh, only got one senior backup at mm. centre-back for, for some reason, for such a rich t- uh, club it's, it's quite surprising
2: Well obviously with Vincent Company retiring um, does it sort of baffle you, Gregor, that they didn't try and fill the hole that he's left?
3: I don't think that was an easy hole to, to fill. But it, does, it is surprising they didn't sign anyone. I mean, replacing Vincent Kompany was always going to be hard, not just because of his de- defensive attributes, but obviously because of what he he offers as a kind of leader and a presence in that back line. And I think that's the other thing that was quite kind of noticeable match of the day too on Sunday. They kind of they showed that there's not much statistically between Otamendi and Laporte defensively. In fact, Otamendi was up there in terms. I think it was blocks and and tackles. But on the ball the port has, was by far and away the most kind of productive and the best the best, best user of the ball basically. And I think what that does is it just even the knowledge that the players around them of that Stones and Otamendi have the potential to kind of lose the ball more often and make the odd mistake, I think it just kind of it can create an, an anxiety. And I think you look at the you look at that, that defensive pairing and there's just not much kind of presence. And I think there's something that's not that uncommon, in fact, in, in a lot of defenses in the Premier League just now will probably go on to talk about Arsenal and how shambolic they were. And they're they're the same. It's kind of it's not all about the 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 glaring errors. It's kind of I think it just, they just they they're not players, not necessarily players that you can be totally reliant upon. And that sort of is a sort of cycle that sort of creates anxiety. Sort of, you know, if someone is really calm and oozes sort of uh, consistency and, and calmness, then that it, it infuses the rest of the players around them. But it works the other way as well.
2: Mm. Well, after the, the game, Guardiola joked that uh, it was, congratulations Liverpool, you are the champions. We are in September, what do you have to do? He says, we'll recover, train and come back. Well, Guardiola wasn't the only one to mention the title race with Kevin De Bruyne, perhaps more seriously reminding Liverpool of their lead at the top, of the league last season, which of course Manchester City were able to surpass. So is it too early, James, to read into this
0: result and and make assumptions about the title race? Uh well, I mean it depends what you mean by make assumptions about the title race. I mean I don't think the I don't think the title race is over. Um I think, you know, this Manchester City team can uh, can definitely uh haul in a five point deficit and we are, you know, at an incredibly early stage of the season still and I think um, you know as good as Liverpool are, and I, I really do think Liverpool are an absolutely outstanding team. I, th- I think they will probably drop more than five points between now and the end of the season. Uh, but five points is, is is a lot given you know the kind of it's it's a significant margin given the I mean the high the incredibly high standards that those two teams have set. Um, you know particularly over the last season. You know. Um, yeah I mean it's a significant advantage that that liverpool have in the in the title race already and i think if you know you know i think most people myself included would have would probably have leaned towards man City at the start of the season and i think now given the advantage that liverpool have it it's probably you know it's a lot closer to to a sort of i mean i th- i thought it was close between them anyway, but I think you know it's now much closer to a sort of fifty fifty battle and and you know maybe you know obviously liverpool at the moment have have, you know, a significant advantage. I think James is right. I mean, you know,
1: five points difference now compared with three seasons ago is much, it's much greater. So mm. because of the... I mean, and if Liverpool were to uh, get the same number of points overall as last season, then Man City have got uh, 33 games left. And even if City were to win 27, draw 5, 5 and lose 1 of those last 33, they still, still wouldn't win the title if Liverpool do us the same. So, so I mean, there's, there's very little margin for error. Mm. I mean, I would say that I don't think Man City are, are... I don't think Liverpool have been better than Man City this season. Man City were very unlucky against Tottenham, and uh, as well as uh, Norwich played, uh, it, it was a bit freakish. I mean, I watched the match through again this morning just to make sure. You know, there were Man City had four times as many dangerous situations where the ball was... Bobbling around the penalty area, it was you know and any nine out nine times out of ten they'd have won that game. so I don't really think there's too much to worry about aside from this little center back issue um but even so the yes the five point gap is a it's something to is quite a bit to make up, and given how uh well Liverpool are playing and, and Liverpool have got, got a good system where they um they're incredibly consistent. And and it would be no surprise if they had no dip in form right through the season.
2: There has been so much attention on City's performance. So are we kind of forgetting to give credit to Norwich and what they did, Gregor?
3: I hope not. I mean <laughs> James wrote a, a great piece in the in the game today that was sort of talking about the the fact that this is this is uh the sort of fruits of 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 a lot of you know, a couple of years labour at least. Um which really started with with Stuart Weber becoming director of football and and uh, employing Daniel Fark and then just completely changing the whole ethos of the club and and bringing sort of committing to bringing through young young talented players like like Todd Campwell and uh, Jamal Lewis, um, and and really spending hardly anything. I think what they they paid what was it seven hundred fifty thousand for some yep, Byron. Exactly. I think that was the biggest mm. biggest outlay in the summer. A few loan, fee, loan fees. So that's you know that's unheard of really for a for a Premier League team, never mind a promoted one. Um, and they're just sticking to the way they they go about it. And as James sort of alluded to in his piece, it, it's not it, it's not something. I don't think people think what did Norwich do to sort of upset the apple cart and to you know, Man City never get never get beaten. So how did they how did they going about this? They just did what they always do. Really, they, they had to soak up more pressure than normal, but. They knocked the ball around at the back and tried to break the lines and and uh, be as composed as they could in possession and and they they, they took their chances and they obviously one was from a, a well worked uh, set piece and and uh, it was a fantastic day for for everyone involved at Carr Road.
2: Hey James, what I liked in your piece, as as Gregor has mentioned in the game today, making reference to the, the minimal spending that Norwich made this summer, that you say they rummage in the bargain bins of English and European football for unwanted and undervalued talents whom they can upcycle. I like upcycling.
0: <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that is literally, that that is very much their philosophy. Um, I think inside, you know, if you talk to those inside the club, there's a real feeling that actually... They, you know, they can't compete really with any, any of the other Premier League team. But actually, they feel that there's not too much kind of value to be had in that sort of, you know, in the kind of, you know, sort of ten million pound region in the transfer market. You know, ten million pounds, you know, doesn't necessarily get you a lot these days. And and they, you know, they really believe that they can sort of make a virtue of necessity. And they feel that there are actually there's value to be had right at the bottom of the transfer market you know in you know free signings which of course of which of course puki was the most uh you know is is has as has been uh you know as as many people have, have said he was he was a free transfer from brondby um you know at the start of last season um this summer they signed josip dermich the swiss international also as a free transfer you know the you know Buendia at the start of last season cost i think 1.3 million from Getafe. Um, and and yeah, they you know, Byron is a great example because he'd obviously had a bit of a torrid time at Man at West Ham, excuse me, um, and such that he had been he'd been so devalued by his performances or you know just the general kind of perception around him as a player that he was obviously available for um, you know three quarters of a million, which is absolutely tiny tiny fee by the standards of modern football. But well, Norwich, he went
3: he went on loan to Forrest last season mm-hmm. and injured his knee. So, you know, it was a whole year almost wasted for him as mm. well. So that is kind of, that is value, yeah, but it's it's still looking sort of quite deep <laughs> beneath, well, the, yeah, beneath the waterline, you know?
0: absolutely. But Norwich kind of recognised that, you know, there was kind of, you know, there was a good a good player underneath it all who, you know, under Daniel Farker could be, you know, moulded into someone who could do a good job in that system. And, and he was, you know, I thought he was excellent on, on Saturday and you know, sort of mainly was able to keep, you know, Bernardo Silva and Raheem Sterling quiet. The whole kind of idea is that they can't buy these players at the top end. So they they either have to, you know, find them at the bottom end of the transfer market or or, or make their own. And obviously, you know, um, Todd Cantwell and Jamal Lewis, who both played on Saturday, both academy products, um, Adam Ida was on the bench and he's another one that they have high hopes for. Farker came, he came from the, the Hennes-Weissweiler Academy, which is the big, very, very famous German coaching school that produced Joachim Love and Julian Nagelsmann and you know all sorts of you know very, very famous German coaches. And I remember I, I went out there sort of a couple of years ago and there I interviewed um, the guy who sort of runs uh the course there, a guy called Daniel Nyetzkowski, and he he said he asked me about about Daniel Farker, he said, How's Daniel Farker doing? And obviously at that point they weren't they weren't doing incredibly well. They were sort of mid table in the championship. But since then you know, they've been basically constantly on the up and up.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think after his uh, first season in charge, not many expected him to still be at Carrow Road. No. But my goodness, credit to, to Norwich and the board for sticking with him and, and now they are reaping the, the rewards. So it is a first defeat for Manchester City, but Liverpool continue their impressive start as they go five points clear after beating Newcastle 3-1 at Anfield. Sadio Mane scored twice as Liverpool came from behind to preserve their 100% start to the season. Now, despite starting on the bench against Newcastle, Roberto Firmino still received the Man of the Match award and it was a superb second-half performance from the Brazilian. Uh, on Monday's podcast, we spoke about the alpha male in the dressing room at Anfield and how Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane are perhaps jostling for that. But, Bill, is Firmino the most precious?
1: Um, I don't know if he's the most precious of the three, but he, I mean he's absolutely vital. He's a brilliant player, very understated player. Um Plays nominally centre-forward but drops back into central midfield and he's, he's fantastic at winning the ball, um, nicking it off an unsuspecting opponent and, uh, and linking play. He's amazing. And, but by dropping back, it allows the two wide attackers to move inwards ahead of him to the penalty area and the, um, Mane and Salah are obviously brilliant finishers. So uh, that's, uh, it all works well. For Liverpool and as a as a trio, um, yes, they're, they're brilliant, and, he, and he's yeah, he's a vital part of that. Mm.
2: Well, Mane and Salah may well be fighting out for top scorer, but you've kind of mentioned the work that Firmino does. Uh, he's sort of the perfect man in the middle, James, who links that play up and just goes about it a lot more quieter than his uh, other teammates, perhaps.
0: Yeah, he, I think he's quite. He's I suppose not. Um, you know, that style of centre forward that, you know, is able to kind of drop deep and, you know, link play and be very unselfish and, and sort of, you know, bring the wide players into play is not kind of is not is not unique, but I think the the extent of the of you know, the brilliance with which Firmino does it is Firmino does it is very unusual. Um and as Bill alluded to, he kind of just transforms the whole chemistry of the team. It just all works when he's when he's playing. I mean I you know I know it's not a proper match, but just remembering back to the um, the Super Cup um, final at the uh, the start of this season, you know that first half, Liverpool were really dominated by Chelsea. Chelsea were completely superior in the first half, and Firmino, Firmino came on at half time, and just you know everything changed. The whole Liverpool attack just clicked into gear. You know Mane and Salah were able to take up much more advanced positions. Um, he's just so integral to the way that front three and and indeed the team as a whole works.
3: Matthew Side used the word fulcrum in, in his column. I think that sums up perfectly. Sort of his intelligence and movement and and the lovely little touches like like that 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 one for for uh, Salah yesterday. No one else does that. I mean, they all have their own unique sort of attributes, and that just they combine to such great effect. But he is the one that sort of makes the other two play better. I'm not sure that's quite the same of the others, but they can do things on their own that just sort of light up the stadium.
2: Clearly Firmino should be the alpha male then, (laughs) shouldn't he? He does everything. But for the second game in a row, every member then of Liverpool's first choice front three directly contributed to to goal. And uh, with big tests at Napoli and Chelsea in the week ahead, there won't be many that can deal with their devastating form. Although, of course, Bill, the Italian side will be hoping they can replicate their 1-0 win from last season in Naples.
1: Yeah, and that... That game, not just a 1-0 win, they absolutely destroyed Liverpool. Um, uh, so Liverpool should uh, you know, be very wary of that. Um, but uh, but yeah, Liverpool are looking very strong um, as, as a whole, as a team. I've put so much uh, of that down to Jurgen Klopp. Uh, it's just a brilliant, uh, relentless uh Pressing style that is just very effective. It's becoming uh, very trendy now uh, in football. Teams are trying to copy it, but he's really. Um, it, it took him a year and a half to work out how to how to uh, it should should operate effectively, and and now it's just it's incessant. Um, so so yeah. Um, now they just have to find a way of um, making it work in Europe and domestically, and try and win both trophies at
2: once. Is that their biggest challenge then, the fact that they might have the European exploits to contend with as well as hoping to win the Premier League for such a long time? Is that their biggest challenge, sort of combining the two, Gregor?
3: Yeah, but it's been their challenge for a number of years and it's the challenge of all the well, of Manchester City primarily and but all the all the other teams in the, the in the top four or five. So this is where you kind of Bits of luck, whether with injuries and whatnot. Last season, they had a great, great run with with injuries, and and uh, the only thing you can really see derailing them is if they were to get an injury to one of those, one of the key players, someone like Van Dyke at the back, or or one of the the front three. Um, but they they look really ominously good.
2: Talking of ominous, then the Newcastle boss Steve Bruce said after that defeat that there is no weakness to them. So how on earth does the rest of the league go about taking them on if there is no weakness to them?
1: The mid- midfield, if you had any qualms, maybe uh, Fabinho. I don't. I, I know you kind of hardly notice it because it's such a brilliant team. Uh, everybody links so well, but on an individual level, he does make quite a few mistakes. Gives the ball away a bit and um, some sort of missed times tackles a bit. I mean, he's still a very good player, but I mean, it, the, the the midfield it is a step down from the the front three. Mm. Um, it's not really in, enough to hold them back from challenging from the, for the title, but I think uh, if, if they did want to strengthen, then I think they still
3: need to get a, 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 a better centre midfielder. And as we say, they, they kind of... We've said in previous pods that they've been letting in a few more goals than, than they had last season, so they're not quite as sound defensively. But for the rest of the Premier League... As Steve Bruce sort of admitted, it's just a wave after wave of attack, and if you try and sit in for for ninety minutes against Liverpool, we saw what Firmino, Dino you know, just just drift around, finds little pockets of space, and and moments of magic that can just split open any defence really. So I'm not sure sitting in. For ninety minutes against Liverpool is is the answer, but I don't know what the answer is to be in the middle. I
0: think the thing that's really ominous about Liverpool as well is that is that players really improve under under Jurgen Klopp's management, and that's that's what's ominous. I think you know I don't think we've really seen the best of Naby Keita yet, and I think you know were he to you know really really kick on this season and and you know play as well as he as he did in the Bundesliga, which I don't actually think he showed last season. I mean, then, you know, they could really be, you know, truly extremely formidable. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.
2: With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast Now, in a crazy pulsating game, Arsenal threw away a two-goal lead to give Kike Sanchez Flores a point at the start of his second stint as the Watford manager. So it seems to be the same old problems for Arsenal. Now, they face 31 shots at their goal. That's the most they have ever faced in a Premier League fixture since the start of data collection in the division back in 2003-04. The Arsenal captain... Said that the Gunners were too scared as they let slip a two-goal lead. This is what Granit Xhaka said. No one wanted the ball. In the end, so we we're happy to take a point. Didn't show our game in the second half. We were too scared. Bill, how alarming is it to hear that? Because if that was my captain, I'd be devastated to hear him say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it did look a bit like that. The, I mean, the first half was fairly even, but the second half, it just it just in the, the mind's eye, there's just three or four Watford players all. Charging through the centre circle and no Arsenal player in sight. It was just so one-sided. It was totally embarrassing for Arsenal. They had absolutely no control over it at all. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to say Watford. It's, it's obviously a false position that they're bottom of the table. I mean, they really are a, a very decent team, and and it reminded me a bit of the the FA Cup semi-final of last season when they came from two 0 down to. For, against Wolves to win three two, I mean they absolutely battered Wolves from uh, kind of half time onwards. Um, but yeah, to do it against Arsenal was um, surprising. I mean, yeah, they, they, I guess they missed Lacazette. He's a he's a very good. You know, he's out injured for a while now. Um, you're looking for Ozil to make a difference to put his you know make his mark on the game. Didn't really do that. As for the, the kind of the d- defensive midfield, they had Gündüz and uh, Xhaka alongside Sabyas, who's slightly more attacking. So none of them are really that um, th- that good at defending. They're, I think they're, they're better going forward. But then when Torreira came on, it didn't make much difference. So um, I mean, it really is kind of the, the game to destroy confidence. You think mm. for Arsenal, where, where do they go from here? They're... They're light years from the title. They're not going to finish in the top four. You You're
0: know, already play, ruling them out,
2: then.
1: Playing like that. I, mm. mean, I mean, it's it was absolutely hopeless. Yeah.
0: I think it's yeah. I think it, it it's, it's it the situation Arsenal is worrying. I think. Um, you mentioned the shots on goal. I think in the first, they've actually faced more shots on goal. Any team in Europe's top five leagues, they're 98 out of 98, which is damning. And I think what Xhaka said, what Xhaka said, is quite interesting because you know quite often Zaka, you know, as someone who covers Arsenal, you know, quite often Xhaka is always quite often the guy who will come out, um, you know, in the mix zone and he'll front up and he'll say, you know, we weren't good enough. And I think, yes, it's kind of you know it, it's in one way it's kind of alarming to say we were scared, but I guess. Do you think it's lost in translation a little
3: bit. Do you I think I it just means we weren't brave enough.
0: Well, I don't know if it's that, but I think quite often, like when when teams, you know, don't play well, it's very tempting to say, you know, oh, you know, we were scared or, you know, we were complacent. The kind of the implication being that, you know, well, if we can sort that, we'll be fine. I think what's more worrying about it is that the system isn't working. And, you know, I'm not sure they actually know, I'm not sure Unai Emery knows what system gets the best out of the players at his disposal. And what Xhaka said that I thought was quite interesting, you know, we didn't show our game, but you know, do our, you know, do Arsenal, you know, impose their game, you know, do Arsenal have a style of football that they impose on other teams? That has always been my, you know, my argument with the kind of Unai Emery when he, with his tenure so far. I don't believe that there's a real coherent style. Yes, you know, we know he likes to, you know, he's kind of a quite pragmatic manager he'll change philosophies that's sorry he'll change formations between games and that's absolutely fine but I think you know modern football teams do still need a kind of coherent overarching idea of how they play and I don't know if Arsenal have that I don't know you know I don't know what type of football Unai Emery wants Arsenal to play I don't know what type of team they're trying to be and for me that's really concerning at this stage in his project
3: see that I think there's a tendency in modern football for people to think that overarching philosophy and way of playing is somehow a substitute for having people can step up and actually just play consistently well. Right. They, they have so many players in that team that, that you look at and they're just not reliable and their captain is one of them. Mm. And I know he's, I I think there is some, that has been lost in translation a little bit. I don't think he's saying we're, we're a bunch of scaredy cats. Mm. I think he's saying we weren't brave enough. And he, he said we didn't People didn't want the ball as much as now. That's that's just that isn't brave enough. Um, but I think, as I alluded to before, with 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 the kind of parent at Man City, and I think Everton, or another club, you don't. You, there's not really anyone I look to and I think reliable, solid performer or leader. I don't think they really have anyone. Arsenal. We've discussed this before. I think it's. It really says it all that Jack is captain, and you can you can be branded a, a luddite for for mentioning this these days. You think, if you know, talking about leadership as if it's cause it's as if it's not important in the modern game. And as I, as i said, it's kind of even when we when you talk about captains and Manchester City, are picking their own their own captains, and and Arsenal have got five five who do, who, who can potentially be captains. All of this feeds into I think fo- fo- footballers. There's, there's less and less people you look to as kind of leaders in the modern game and Arsenal are certainly a club that you look that definitely implies to I Mm. think Arsenal do like to uh, they are in danger
1: of going onto the back foot a lot because you look at uh, last season they had they faced about 30 shots more than they had themselves and they finished top five you know Miles above the average. So it's a kind of, over a long period, it shows their style of play was to give up chances. But generally, uh, what happens in that situation is opponents shoot from outside the box. So, you know, small chance, uh, small chance of a goal. And Arsenal chances are all on the break and much clearer chances on average. So, and, and Burnley have done this for years, you know. So, um, so their style, they have a style in that they do sit. Sit back, really, uh, as those figures suggest, but um uh, I mean yesterday against Watford, they were sitting back and you know in the second half, and they did they was just no counter
3: punch at all mm. so that 's when it really looks uh, terrible Well, other thing I would say is that the the goal kick rule is becoming more and more fascinating by the mm-hmm. by the week you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the teams are, are asking their players to do a lot of them are asking players to do something they 're not comfortable with, yeah. clearly uh. And it's costing goals. Um, so I think it'll be fascinating to see how that kind of whether that lasts and persists, whether they keep asking certain halves who really aren't particularly comfortable on the ball to get the ball on their own six yard line from the goalkeeper and start building attacks. And those sort of mistakes that the Socrates' is misplaced pass and
1: Otto Mendy mis- uh, losing the ball, you know, they're, they're becoming so common now that, uh, you know, uh, Michael Keane for England a few days before gave the ball away. Mason Mount scored for Chelsea against Leicester and just took yep. the ball off indeed he de- boom the ball was in the net within a second. Um, Makes for a good fun, good But These these sort of incidents used to be kind of one every three or four months, but now it's just every every weekend. You know.
2: So what about Watford then? With Kike Sanchez Flores now back in charge, he'll definitely be happy with that second half display, but. Will he have any issues with the fact that he did have or his side had thirty one attempts on goal yet they couldn't beat Arsenal? Could that be an issue, James, for him?
0: Yeah, I'm sure he'll think that they, you know, that they could and and, you know, maybe should have, have won the game. Um, they obviously, you know, clearly had the balance of play. Um, yeah, I mean I, I agree with what Bill said earlier that I think Watford are in a slightly we're in a slightly false position, I think, that, you know, they, you know, although I think there had been, you know, a bit of a downturn in performances under Javi Gracia, I don't think that they're quite as they're as bad as their position on the table suggested. But they're, you know, they're a strange team. They're very, very cyclical. And, and, you know, this is, we've seen this, you know, over and over again, including in Kike Sanchez-Flores' first spell. You know, the team is, you know, plays pretty well under, you know, a manager for a while and then sort of, you know, there's kind of a gradual drop off, and then the change of manager, and and you know, things pick back up. They they're just quite a, a cyclical team in in that way. Um, the club obviously don't have they don't have qualms about making those managerial changes, and um, you know maybe the return of, of well, I mean, on the evidence of this performance, the, the return of Kike Sanchez Flores seems to already have had a bit of a, a bit of an effect.
2: The Rugby World Cup 2019 kicks off in Japan this week. The Times will be at every game, and The Ruck, our award winning rugby podcast, will be covering the tournament in its unique style. Presented by World Cup winner and former England captain Lawrence DeLalio, we'll bring you the latest news from Owen Slott, Stephen Jones, and the rest of our writers on the ground as they experience the sights and sounds of the greatest tournament in world rugby. The first of two preview shows is available now. Just search for The Ruck on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or ACAST. And don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. Tammy Abraham's first Premier League hat trick inspired Chelsea to a 5 2 victory at Wolves to kickstart the Frank Lampard era. Now, all 11 league goals under Lampard have now come from English players aged 21 or under and right now it is Abraham who is grabbing all the headlines does his hat-trick then finally cement him as the player to lead the line for Chelsea over Olivier Giroud Gregor?
3: Certainly for the time being yeah I mean I, I'll admit it and I, I think I said at the start of the season I, I I saw Tammy Abraham play in the championship and there were times where he gave the ball away a lot and he scored obviously he scored a lot of goals for Bristol City and, and Villa um, but I wasn't convinced really. But the, the second goal in particular, uh, in particular, no it was his hat-trick goal sorry, his third goal in particular was something I hadn't seen from Tammy Abram before where he turned Cody and with a little kind of shuffle and he was away at everything, you know, it's power, strength lovely, lovely technique and a, and a clinical finish and I thought, yeah okay, you've got something a bit more than I <laughs> uh, I thought and I'm not not too proud to say that, you know <laughs> um, So yeah, he's he's I think people are getting quite excited. You know, talking. You look at. You shouldn't look at Twitter too much, but they're talking about a curse of the number nine and whatnot. And him getting handed the number nine was a huge sort of statement in, in, in the summer, anyway. And he's certainly he's certainly gone from strength to strength. Um, and I think I think he's got r- real potential to be to be a, a success this season for Chelsea. yeah.
2: He has already played for the uh, Three Lions twice, but only in friendlies, meaning he could actually still switch allegiances to Nigeria for whom he qualifies through his father, something the player himself has actually refused to rule out. Abraham said, I've heard the talk about being called up by Nigeria. When the time comes, the time comes. I've not really focused on that yet. I'm focusing on Chelsea and hopefully scoring goals and getting victories. But he says, we never know. You can never say never. Whatever comes first, just really. Would this be a big miss for England, Bill, if he yeah. chooses to play for Nigeria?
1: Yeah, it would. Yeah, he, he at the moment he's showing potential to be a, an England player um, for you know a long term England player. You can't be sh- sure yet, um, but uh, he's had a brilliant start. And as Gregor said, that uh, that goal where he just held off Cody brilliantly, uh, you know, great strength. Great skill, great finishing, all in one. Um, that was uh, a real eye opener. Um, so, so certainly, if uh, England should be trying to get him on the pitch for the next uh, qualifier. So, uh, so he's no longer eligible for Nigeria. I mean, the, the fact that he's saying uh, never say never. I mean, I think that's just. I'm not sure how much you can read into that. Uh, y- that's really politically what you should be saying because <laughs> if you say, oh, no, I definitely want to play for England, and, mm. you know, not the idea of playing for Nigeria going on long trips every every so often and, and then it turns out you do play for Nigeria it's <laughs> going to be thrown back in your mm. face, and you know, and then we have a bad game, people are accusing you of not trying because you, you don't want to be playing. So, you, you know, it's best to say that. And it's also uh, good for your own career to say, um yeah I wouldn't maybe I'll play for England mm-hmm. maybe I'll play for Nigeria because Gareth Southgate will hear that and think oh I better It's a bit uh, of a come and get me yeah, play. i I better really. actually uh, make sure he does play to, <laughs> in the next qualifier next competitive game so that he's no longer uh, eligible for anyone else.
2: So James do you think he'll be in Gareth Southgate's next squad or should he be in Gareth Southgate's squad?
0: I think he's yeah I think he's he's you know he's got to be he's got to be very close you know, on form anyway, leaving aside the whole kind of issue of his, you know, dual uh, allegiances, potentially, he's, you know, he's one of the form strikers in the Premier League and he also very clearly fits, you know, an ethos that Southgate is trying to develop, which is, you know, to bring through players from the, you know, successful England youth teams. I mean, that's obviously he obviously did call Tammy Abraham up. I think for the friendlies against Germany and Brazil back yeah. in 2017. And so he's obviously he's obviously done it once. He's obviously a player that he he's aware of. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, wouldn't I wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, and he's obviously you know a slightly he's he's a much younger player than you know some of the other backup centre forward options that Southgate has at the moment, like the likes of Callum Wilson. Uh, who's a very good player, but maybe doesn't have the kind of you know upside that Tammy Abraham has in terms of his development. England have everyone always often talks about you know missing out on Wilfried Zahar, which is a big miss for England, and and you know I think you know that will probably be a bit of a kind of cautionary cautionary tale. Um, and yeah, I would imagine that there are probably discussions you know going on already about you know making sure that he doesn't slip through the net because he's clearly an excellent player.
2: If he does get a call up Gregor this has to be a decision based on form rather than the potential doesn't it of Tammy Abraham because you don't want to call someone up who might only play one or two games and then never plays international football again do you?
3: I'm not sure that would be kind of key's biggest worry just now I'm I sure think you'll wouldn't. want to get him in a, in a squad and get him on a pitch um, yeah I mean the, the the only thing is you just never know it's always down to the, to the individual I think it, it'd be amazing if, if he continues in even half of this vein of form he doesn't get called up to the next squad. I'd be amazed I'd be amazed. But you just never do know about, you know, what what the Legion's are and he's you know how how kind of strongly he feels about his sort of parental heritage as well. So you just never know. Um and he has spoken kind of more gushingly about about the prospect of playing playing for England. But um until he's out on that pitch uh, in a competitive game then it won't really matter.
2: Let's reflect now on the championship and it was quite an introduction Gregor for the Cowleys as they take up the reins at uh, Huddersfield. You've written a piece in the game today with the headline of Cowleys facing huge task at hurting Huddersfield. It's not a good season for them so far.
3: No uh, solitary point so far. I think only uh, Stoker keeping them off the foot of the table. Another club who hired a a sort of lower league up and coming manager, and Nathan Jones. Um, I was just really surprised by how bad Huddersfield were. <laughs> you, so think, you were there, were you? Yes, yeah. I was at the game, and I, I think you think when a, a team's relegated from the Premier League, it, they must have you kind know, of a good squad and they've got money behind them, they've got parachute payments, they should be challenging. But I saw no evidence whatsoever to suggest that that's the case. Um, in fact, I would say that Sheffield Wednesday. Of far, by far the better squad, more talent in the ranks. Gary Monk was another new manager who who took the helm there, so it was the battle of the new bosses. Um, and they were fully deserving of their 2-0 win. Um, uh, and and Sheffield Wednesday are a club who have spent really heavily in the last few years, came close on a couple of occasions, got to the playoffs um, twice. And they still got the kind of nucleus of a really good squad there, Uh they just lost away a way, bit under Josla Hukai and then Steve Bruce, obviously up left, up and left for Newcastle. But I'd see no reason. I would definitely be more optimistic if I was a Sheffield Wednesday fan than Huddersfield. For on Huddersfield's part, I think they've just lost a lot of players of the from the squad that got them to the Premier League and kept them up in the first season. Aaron Moy is probably the biggest loss in the in the summer to Brighton on loan. Um, and the Cowleys kind of they speak; they're, they're, they're inspiring, you know. They what they did at Lincoln. Two promotions, that cup run, FA Cup run to the quarterfinals. It's all built on sort of building bonds and and strong relationships with the players, with the staff, with supporters, and and uh, they transformed Lincoln. I just think that they won't be afforded the same amount of time to sort of build those relationships, and they're well aware of that. He, he said that after the game. I think they held half an hour meetings with all twenty eight members of their playing staff. Last week in the first week Mm -hmm. in the job, they say it's all. First of all, it's about getting to know them as people, and then they'll start working for you, and you can affect them. So that's it's all about the human sort of touch with them. I just think, like Nathan Jones, like Paul Hurst, who was another one who went to Ipswich last season. These guys, they don't come in with a reputation. Some of them won't even know who they were. They won't Mm -hmm. pay attention to Lincoln City, unfortunately. So they have to get some results or else the task becomes harder and harder and harder.
2: But I suppose it's more it's the work they do in training which will then get the results because if the players aren't having it in training they're not going to have it in a yeah, game.
3: Yeah and, that, and they're, by all reg- regards they're they are they're very sort of huge huge detail in, in, in their work on the training ground and stuff like that but I just think that you know he said, I think he said we've got to become more process driven rather than sort of results orientated or something along those lines and I kind of immediately thought well that's that's solved fine and well but you need to get these results soon because as i say it, the sort of the crowd the crowd could get sort of a little more more anxious it was a bad place under jan seward i think he won once in in seven months since his appointment he replaced david Wagner in january um i think they've won three in 52 games so it's it's woeful really woeful form uh and a big job yeah
2: what is the atmosphere like there
3: the atmosphere was really good before the game. They they were well, warmly welcomed. They're you know they're well thought of and and they spoke kind of in the way they do about connecting with a working class town and that kind of thing. is you know, they know they know what tunes to play <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they played them and they they soaked up the the applause beforehand. But Sheffield Wednesday took the lead after after ten minutes and they were two 0 up with twenty minutes to go and they could have it could have been more. And sort of realism came. Uh, bit in the end I think for the sports.
2: so it's not going well for Huddersfield but it's different for another Yorkshire team top of the pile Leeds
3: yeah Leeds um, with a really important 2-0 two, win against Barnsley another Yorkshire derby um, Eddie Nketiah the, the the loanee from Arsenal he's got four goals in six games and he's, but he's not started in the league yet and I think people are chomping at the bit to see him start and play more often because the thing with Leeds last season they were the top of the championship in just about every metric you could imagine apart from kind of the ratio of chances to goals and that's still the case this season they they create so many chances and it takes so many chances before they actually hit the back of the net Patrick Bamford is scoring he scored some goals but he's not setting the world world the light so they really I think they are pinning their hopes on him being a prolific striker for them this season because they've got so much strength and depth and you People like Hilder Costa as well, who came from Wolves. He's still on the bench. Be looking to get him in the team soon. Um, Luke Ayling still to come back, almost a bit like Pep Guardiola. Bielsa's shifted Stuart Dallas into <laughs> like an absolute world-beating right back yeah. <laughs> from a winger, uh, so he'll do well to get back in the team. um there's a huge boost. Calvin Phillips signed a new five-year deal uh, last week. So yes, yeah, it's, it's all looking really positive for for Leeds they, I'd say they're even perhaps performing better than they were controlling games better than they were last season it's just about converting those sort of chances into goals and there's always going to be the lingering fear of, of kind of a Bielsa burnout mm-hmm. even though it didn't really quite ha- happen last season it's just you know there's a lot of injuries and whatnot it's just that's always the lingering fear but it's fascinating to watch
2: Okay, something we will look out for, as we will with the Champions League, which returns this week. Um, Tuesday night, Liverpool head to Italy, as we've mentioned. They take on Napoli and Chelsea are at home to Valencia. And then on Wednesday, Tottenham are in Greece as they face Olympiakos. Manchester City are taking on Shakhtar Donetsk. Another standout game is PSG against Real Madrid. Which team do you think is best placed to win the Champions League this season, James?
0: uh honestly i think um i don't think any in my opinion, I think anyone is better placed than uh Liverpool or man city uh for me, I think they're the two still think they're the two best teams in europe um we've spoken a lot about the kind of various you know rebuilding phases that a lot of the kind of traditional European powers are in um and yeah i honestly think those two teams are are better placed than any of Barcelona, Paris Saint Germain, Real Madrid, Bayern, Munich. Um but in in Liverpool's case obviously, uh, it's it's obviously as we spoke about, it's kind of managing um the demands of European football with their desire to win the league, which, you know, I guess unusually is probably their, you know, is their preference or priority. They, you know, if I think if you asked them they would probably prefer to win the Premier League than to win the Champions League and and with Man City it's the kind of it's the hoodoo it's the sort of you know the fact that they haven't they haven't won it they've never managed to kind of get past you know whatever it is that kind of seems to afflict them in this competition it's a little bit of the kind of you know we've spoken a little bit about how you know in recent seasons Pep it's slightly overcomplicated but yeah honestly i think those are the two best strongest teams mm. um and and obviously we're we're a long way off the kind of the stage where either of those sides are going to be found out i mean i'm I'm fairly sure that both those teams are going to get through the group stage with with no problem whatsoever bill do you agree those two uh, yeah, are the front I mean,
1: runners yeah i think they're the the best two teams in europe yeah not not so superior that it's inevitable they'll meet in the final but uh, um but yeah I, I i would certainly put those at the top uh also should, uh, I would think Chelsea and Tottenham will get through their groups as well. Um yeah in, over the last two seasons English clubs have have really uh, reestablished themselves uh, as uh, really I think the the strongest uh, the strongest representatives uh among the the big five and basically the Champions League is the the big five leagues now not the 55 leagues. <laughs> um it's it's uh uh, yes in Real Madrid uh, it'll be interesting to see how Hazard and uh, Bale get on uh, eventually when they play in the same team eventually because Hazard made his uh, debut um, in the league at the weekend and I think Bale was suspended so when they get together they'll be worth watching mm. um, and uh, the uh, Real still got quite a established uh, set of Players, they're not too old. I suppose Modric is getting on, but Kroos and uh, Benzema and Casemiro are still, I think, reasonable ages. So um, uh, they'll be, a, you know, a threat. And obviously Barcelona, Messi, just never loses form. <laughs> Probably never will. So they'll they'll be a threat as well. And uh, I guess Juventus and Bayern Munich are the the other two main contenders.
2: With Chelsea, they're facing Valencia, Lille and Ajax in their group. Gregor, we've obviously quite a lot on this podcast spoken uh, about the young squad that Frank Lampard has. How do you think they're going to fare on the European stage?
3: I think it's like the the Premier League. I think we said at the start, these guys are... We could probably know and say with fair certainty that they're Premier League standard players. It's whether they're elite Premier League standard players, whether they're capable of playing in a team of that'll get in the top four, maybe even win the league. Um and so far so good, really. Um so this is just a, this is another test, this is another sort of unknown, I think. Um and they're gonna they're gonna come up against different very different opposition, different sort of tactical approaches and, and uh it's gonna be a, a big learning curve for them. But I think all the signs so far are, are, are that Certainly, the three players that that played at Wolves, Tomori and Mount and uh, and Abraham, they're good enough to to play in in a in a very good Chelsea team. One last thing on the on the Chelsea kids, I just you just it does not make you wonder how many kids over the last decade or so there could have been. Mm. How many? There's no no nothing to suggest that these guys are any sort of more spectacular or or uh, cool. talented than than many of the players of. That Chelsea have been producing, they've been dominated. You know, I think they won seven out of the last ten FA Youth cups. have got this is not, this has been going on for a long time. Their academy has been fruitful for so long, and yeah, it's good to see these guys come through. It's great to see them play, um, and Chelsea fans are loving it. But how many have been sort of missed over the years? It's it's often hard. You've got staying at this, at one level at the top level at a Premier League club like Chelsea. It kind of it. It makes you better. You playing with better players and, and sort of testing yourself and push, and stretching yourself sort of helps you grow as a player. When you have to drop down, it's it's often hard to, to get back to that level. So it's a little bit sad, I think.
2: Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Bill Edgar and James Gearbrandt.
3: Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet.
2: It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we'll be back on Thursday, looking back on a busy week of Champions League action.
0: The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.